Good morning, church. I'm Melissa, and this is Robin Benson, and we are covenant members here at First Presbyterian San Antonio. This morning, we celebrate how Christian stewardship of gospel freedom is marked by service to others, motivated to win others to Christ, and meant to share gospel blessings with others. The gospel frees deliverers to join Paul in becoming all things to all people in order to in order that more will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Please join us in reading 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Hear now the word of God. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I become one under the law, though not being myself under the law, <laughs> that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became one as outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Join us in the call and response. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. As the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Melissa and Robin. On that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I add my greetings to those that you've already heard. I am, I don't know, are you as excited as I am about unpacking this passage? I'm pumped up. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. We're going to walk through this passage after a brief introduction. If you don't have a Bible, if you have a phone uh, or anything that you could follow along, our hope really is we worship God by studying his word, allowing his spirit to truly transform us. Uh, we want to know him, who he's revealed himself to be, and through that know ourselves more fully and what it means to live for him more faithfully and fruitfully. So before we go to the word of the Lord together, will you go with me to the Lord of the word in prayer and ask for his blessing? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that your Holy Spirit would sit on us. Lord, ambush us with your love, that you might ignite in us a fire to show your love and to share your love with everything we say with our lips, all we do in our labor, everything we do with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, uh, the gospel solution. We're, we're, we're examining uh, this and celebrating the, the provision of the Lord and the gospel as the solution to all of, of the problems of all of our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, every, everywhere. Uh, it, God provides the solution through the gospel. Uh, we're doing so by looking at different problems in the Corinthian context and the correspondence. And this is, we're in the middle of our sixth problem. And uh, Paul here is doubling down on what we looked at last week by way of reminder. Uh, the sixth problem is that some Corinthian Christians were eating meat, they were eating food that had been offered to idols. And that wasn't itself the problem. They were doing it in a way that broke down and tripped up their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were causing them to stumble. 
And the gospel creates a culture where we're intentionally building one another up by love, not breaking others apart by causing them to stumble. And the solution, it isn't anything in ourselves. It isn't to try harder and do anything different first and foremost. It always begins with God's work for us. We see that Christ laid down his rights for us so that we're free to love by building others up, not allowing our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. The reality is that Christ died for all of our family of faith in the same way he died for us. So we're willing to die so that others can live. So this is where we pick up. And what Paul does here, uh, it's characteristic of his pedagogy, his teaching, to use himself as an example. In fact, very famously in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, imitate me, follow me as I imitate and I follow Christ, right? Uh, That begins as far back as 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. And we're right in the middle of that. So as Paul is encouraging the church to love one another by laying down each other's rights, he elevates himself as an example. And so all of chapter 9 is is Paul uh, celebrating his apostolic authority, by laying down his rights so that others can live, so that the gospel can go forward, so that he can preach the gospel free of charge. And so we're picking up right in that context, and we're going to have to understand the nature of freedom, Christian freedom. It's really central to Paul's teaching, especially here. Uh, And the truth is that you and I need to disentangle ourselves Uh, from the world's view, non-biblical ways of the thing about freedom, and we need to distance ourselves from ungodly ways to use our freedom. So uh, let me use an example of how confused you are by, uh, I'm looking at all of you, don't don't take offense at that, Patrick. So how many of you all have heard the new Burger King jingle? You rule. Y'all heard that? I mean, it just echoes in your head. Burger King is, it illustrates really well how confused we are in our culture. They've resurrected their 1970s, 1980s slogan, have it your way, right away, right? And now they've elevated it with this jingle that's literally called, you rule the day. And the last line of this, it says, you rule, you're seizing the day at BK, have it your way. In this illusion of freedom, that freedom is doing what you want, when you want it, having what you want, your way, right away, it's false. You say, Mitchell, can you prove that? Absolutely. After church, here's what I want you to do. Go to Burger King, and when you're done with your fries, take the holder up there and say, can I get a refill on fries? This is my way, and I want it right away. And they'll look at you, no, here's something you can do. Just order your Whopper, just eat the meat and take the buns up and go, I'd like a refill on my patty, please. (laughs) And they'll say no and just say, hold on, you said that I rule this day. You said I can have it my way right away, so I want my refills on fries and meat ahora. (laughs) Right? It's not going to happen. In fact, if you insist on your way to rule the day in any Burger King franchise. If you push too hard on that, you might actually lose your freedom completely and get arrested. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just stop the illustration there, all right? But you get it. So the promises of freedom in our culture, 
They're real as long as you're profiting the culture. As long as your choices are actually benefiting their priorities. You see this illusion that freedom is being able to do what you want, when you want it, to live without any constraint at all is a lie. True freedom is found when we are actually within the right constraints. I can't say it better than uh, Dr. Tim Keller, who wrote in his book, Every Good Endeavor. This is what he says. Modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the water and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. The fish is not more free, but the fish is less free if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true in many areas of life for humans. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. So Paul's going to argue that true freedom is actually found in living as a slave, serving Christ and loving one another that they others might know Christ and his love. And so the ecosystem, when we're considering freedom, it's centered on on the gospel of Christ. But let's go ahead and jump into the main points today. The first thing that we see when we look at this passage is that Christian stewardship of gospel freedom is marked by service to others. Look at how this starts. Paul just begins this section saying, for I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all. Most Christians, if you're a Christian here today, uh, most of us understand that we're freed from the power and the penalty of sin. That when Christ died on the cross, he paid the entire debt that we owe, and by his blood, he washes us clean. But most Christians don't understand what you're freed for. Just as much as you're freed from the penalty and power of sin, You're freed in Christ for a specific purpose. And if you don't know Christ personally, if you're not a Christian, then this purpose is an invitation that can only be found in Christ. But but let me illustrate this tension. Uh, You can find this book online. It's a free PDF. It's called Up From Slavery. And Booker T. Washington is one of the most uh, pivotal people in the history of our country, tells the story of his own life. And some of you, if you've come to Tribe, you've heard me use this illustration. But Booker T. Washington tells in this uh, book, Up From Slavery, uh, the story of when his plantation heard about the freedom that was announced from the Emancipation Proclamation, President Lincoln's announcement of freedom. And uh, Booker T. Washington describes people coming up from their fields, up from their cabins to the big house to hear this. This is his language. After they hear the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, after the reading... We were told we were all free. We were told we could go when and where we pleased. And for some minutes, there was great rejoicing, great thanksgiving with wild scenes of ecstasy. 
the wild rejoicing lasted but a brief period. And he, he spent some time, I'm skipping over. He talks about how his mom was in tears, holding the kids. Uh, this is something she'd been praying for forever. She's super emotional. There's lots of emotions. But then he goes in and he says this, the wild rejoicing lasted but for a brief period. Before I noticed it, everyone returned to their cabins with a change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free, of having charge over themselves, of having to think and plan for their children, it seemed to take possession of them. In a few moments, the great questions of life were thrown upon these people to be solved. The rejoicing of being freed from necessarily leads us to the burden of question, what are we freed for? And Paul is explicit that if you know the freedom that comes from Christ, of what Christ says in John 8, verse 36, that if the Son of God frees you, you are free indeed. The freedom that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, 1, that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you know this freedom, he says you are free to be a slave to everyone. That is his language. Look with this, look down here. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. The language literally means I've made myself a slave to all. In this emphasis that Paul gives, it's not a revolutionary new idea. He's taking what he's already mentioned in Romans. Well, I say already. Let's not talk about chronology of the canonization of the New Testament real quick. But he repeats it in other places. And it's exactly what Jesus taught in places like Mark chapter 10, where he says, the greatest among you, the, the one that's the greatest of all, is the servant of all. The one who not seeks to elevate themselves, to live with authority like the world, but the one who gives themselves as a servant, a slave to everybody. This is what Jesus teaches in Mark 10, 35 to 45, and in other various places. It's Paul carrying this gospel heritage of what it means to truly, truly live in freedom. But what are we freed for? This is where he goes. Christian stewardship is not just freedom marked by service to others, but it's Christian stewardship uh, of gospel freedom is motivated to win others for Christ. You see how the phrase, the verse ends? That I might win more of them. Now, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Read his quick testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He was, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles, that he might meet, reach more of them, unbelieving men and women, people outside the Jewish heritage, and those even inside the Jewish faith, faith that did not know Christ as the Messiah and the Savior. The Savior. He uses a language here that I might win more of them. You're familiar with this language if you are, have associated business in any way, shape, or form. If you've sold lemonade and you've tried to make a profit, if you've run a business or worked in a business, if you bought anything from a business, you get this word. The Greek word, it, it is an economic term that 100% means profit. And what Paul is saying is that he preaches the gospel free of charge. He lays down his rights for the prophet to win people of the kingdom of God, that they would know the love of God. The whole motive of his doing this is so that people that don't know Jesus will come to know Jesus. 
And it's because Paul knows the righteousness of God by faith. He knows the saving power of Jesus through faith, that he wants to give himself and identify with Christ in living in loss for others to gain and profit of knowing Christ. You see, Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. It's a standard that we all have. And that's why it's an invitation for us. But how did Paul do it? Now, you can see in your notes that, uh, at the bottom of, of the pay, first page there that there's, there's four different things, five different things that Paul does. Uh, and, and we're just going to walk through them. But it's important that we understand this, and you need to get it. Paul's not articulating life as a chameleon, like a people pleaser. Do you know a people pleaser? The answer is, if you know me, you do, all right? I struggle with that. You know people like me, that they're just trying to do everything for people to like them? It's a chameleon. You blend in just to win friends. And, and Paul's not being a politician. He's not spinning things so that he can win a contingency and, and, and get a, 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 you know, some, shore up his authority and, and, and people to support him. He's not doing that. He's demonstrating what we call incarnation, but what is called in his culture, accommodation. And we're going to talk about that more as we look at this. Look, look how Paul does this. He says, to the Jews, I became. Now, Paul's there. Look down. Paul's there, but look down. That word became, it's repeated. To the Jews, I became. And then it's repeated at the end of that verse. To those under the law, I became. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became. Verse 22. To the weak, I became. And, and the language, the grammar of this, it's emphasizing an actual change. He became something. Uh, for a Christian, if you know Christ, it takes you back to Christmas, the incarnation where God became man, that the word became flesh. And so Paul, he's celebrating being a new creation in Christ by accommodating to reach everybody for Christ. He's not compromising He's incarnating by becoming. Uh, who did he get? Who did he become? Look at this. So he reached people in his national heritage. To the Jews, I became a Jew. Paul embraced his Jewishness so that he could reach people from his national heritage that did not know Jesus as the Messiah. It's why if you go to Acts chapter 18, where we read about Paul's Corinthian journey, that he begins his ministry his service by sharing in the synagogues on the Sabbath. He seeks to reach people from his national heritage, but not only that, he seeks to reach people and become people of his moral heritage, right? And this is why to those under the law, he became like those under the law. Now, this is significant because Paul spends a lot of time in other places talking about how he's free from the ceremonial realities, the rituals, the holy days. He's free from all of those things, but he became that so that those who define themselves under the law could actually come to know the freedom that's in Christ. So the third thing he, he says, he went to people who were outside of his moral and national heritage. He says to those who were outside the law, I became as one outside the law. This doesn't mean that Paul stole somebody's chariot and then he, he broke the chariot speed limit 
by riding through the market really fast. And while he was on a stolen chariot breaking the speed limit, he was stealing fruit from fruit stands when he went. Paul is not saying that he lived lawlessly. Paul did not become a tax collector to reach tax collectors. He didn't become an adulterer or a drug addict to reach adulterers or drug addicts. He did not become a prostitute to reach prostitutes. He actually is promoting the invitation we have and understand the gospel where we can meet people on the same level of neediness. See, just read the uh, last part of the verse. Though, he says, to those under the law became as one, uh, as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, I might win those to the law. Those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside of the law of God, but rather under the law of Christ. That law of liberty to love is what Paul celebrates. It's the same language. If, if you know one of the most famous places where Paul claims something about himself. He talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. He talks about the lawlessness which, which he lived, even as a Pharisee, even as a Jewish teacher of the law, when he blasphemed and he captured people in the name of Christ and he murdered and killed. What does he say at the end of that? 1, 1 Timothy 1, 15. He says, I became, I am the chief. He crowns himself the chief of sinners. You see, what Paul's doing is he's saying the gospel gives us this level ground that no matter who we're talking to, how far they are outside the moral tradition, how far they are outside of our understanding of our natural culture, that we can operate on the same level of neediness. All of us need the grace of God. And that's a vulnerable place. And that's okay. Because Paul also invites us to become all things to all people by becoming weak and marginalized. This is where he ends. To the weak I became weak that I might win some. I've become all things to all people. Now the weak, we don't know. Maybe he's referring to 1 Corinthians 8 where he's talking about weak spiritually. Maybe he's talking about 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 uh, where he talks about the weak physically, and frankly, it doesn't matter because we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 12, it's where Paul talks about the sufficiency of all God's grace, that in our power and our weakness, God's power is made sufficient. Yeah. So no matter who is Paul being vulnerable with, he's free to be weak. He's free to meet people where they are and trust the sufficiency of God's grace to bring them to where he desires. Uh, this level of, of, of accommodation, it's, um, it's something that uh, rhetorici rhetoricians, people who practice rhetoric, uh, who were Greek and Roman, uh, they, even there were some Jewish culturally, there's some Jewish holy people that led people uh, in specific things of holiness for, in the Jewish faith. They practice this, this uh, uh, what they call the accommodation. And it simply is incarnation identification with people so that they can see the love of Jesus that you seek to show in order that they could come to know Christ. Now, uh, we have lots of examples of this in our lives. Uh, probably most famously is a guy named Hudson Taylor. Huge example of a great godly missionary. He founded the China Inland Mission. He was the first missionary uh, that went 
inland. Most missionary, every missionary in his day stayed on the exterior of places. And every missionary in his day actually preserved their cultural heritage. Hudson Taylor was from England and he went in the interior of China and he laid down his English language and he took up learning Chinese. He took off his English garments and clothes and he put on the clothes of the Chinese. He even wore his hair like Callan. I mean, the Chinese. <laughs> All right? Hudson Taylor's goal was to become as Chinese as possible in order to reach as many Chinese as possible without compromising the integrity of the gospel at all. Now, this is something we need to learn from as Christians in this culture because we've got to translate the gospel now more than ever. We live in not just a, a post-Christian America, but we, we live, we're on the brink of an anti-Christian America. And it's on us to embrace the opportunity of accommodation. And it's tough. Let me give you an example from my own life. Uh, some of you all know that we used to live in Indonesia and to learn the language of a country so that you can reach people from a country. We tried to do that, not real successfully. I'll never forget the first time I really, really tried. This was my first time. You know, you're feeling vulnerable. You've studied a language. I'm teaching a class and I learned a joke in Indonesian. And then I learned how to say, I'm joking in Indonesia. Saya bercanda, right? Not too tough. I say the joke, nobody laughs. After the joke, I say, saya bercinta, and everybody falls out laughing. I mean, falling over laughing. And I look at my translator and I said, I think I said that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And people are dying laughing. Someone stands up from the back of the room and says, sir, you just told us you're making love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And half of you now are judging me. I can't believe a pastor would say that. You obviously weren't here for 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, all right? Paul goes a lot further than that, all right? So lay down your self-righteous judgment of me, all right? And just know, saya brachanda, yeah? Oh, got it that time. It's hard to learn a language so that you can connect with people culturally that some people might come to know Christ personally. But we, we have to embrace this opportunity as Christians. Personally, how do I do that? I'm in super out of touch. The older I get, the more I realize how out of touch I am with everything. I listen to one po several podcasts every week. One of them is called The Culture Translator. There's a 10-minute version of it. There's an hour and a half version of it. Guess which one I listen to, right? Summary, cliff notes, thank you. Still works when you're older, kids. Um, but there's lots of ways that we can learn how to translate the gospel into the culture so that everywhere we go and everyone we meet, we can see ourselves as slaves, servants, in order that we might win a few. So not only is Paul's motive, this level of accommodation to reach people, even willing to look foolish to reach people, Christ is the model of a person and work of Jesus, it's all about how Christ has loved us. But Christian stewardship is about more. It's about more than this. Christian freedom, stewarding Christian freedom, it's meant to share gospel blessings with others. And, and this, is, this is fascinating to me. 
Because Paul doesn't stop with this great invitation uh, to go out and be a part of God's work uh, and, and sharing the gospel. He actually lands it by saying, this is what's best for you. What your heart has been hungering for, you find it when you actually participate in sharing the gospel. The last verse, this is what Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in it. Now the ESV and most translations add in its blessings, but it actually stops with in it. Who are the them? The them are the people that don't know Christ that come to know Christ. But they're also people that we live with and love with as servants of Christ. It's the body of Christ growing and sharing the blessing of the gospel in it. You say, Mitchell, how does that work? Let me give you a few examples. Paul gives us pictures of how you can have the hunger of your heart satisfied and participate in God's work. First, we talked about it. First is relationship. First Corinthians chapter three, we talked about the unity that comes through participating with God in his work. You remember God, it's God's field. It's God's building. It's God, the one that gives, he's one that gives the growth. That every person has a role in reaching every body. All of us do. But the same word, when Paul, it, it lands in verse nine of chapter three, he says, you are God's fellow workers. It's the same word, root word, that's used in this passage. And what Paul is saying is that you get to know not only uh, God more by working with him in his work, but this root word of fellowship, you get to know each other more. There's a greater sense of unity. Uh, now, yesterday, we experienced this in spades. Uh, many of you participated in our Love San Antonio weekend activities. We had several different projects that were about uh, around the city, downtown and all around. All the way down to you know, Vaughn Army is where our Habitat house was. And I had the privilege of going to multiple different sites. And when I went down to the Habitat house, this truth was super clear, but it was also clear absolutely everywhere. This was clear when we were working with Snack Pack for Kids. This was clear at Morningside. It was clear over at Peach Jazz, clear in the works we're, we're doing downtown. Everywhere we were, this truth was true. That in our participation of service and giving ourselves, we, we celebrate where God was already working and we deepen in relationship with one another. And at the Habitat House, we were able to, to, to see how God was working that the person that was gonna live in the Habitat house that our team was working on actually was a, a grandmother raising her grandkids, her three grandkids. She was already connected with a Grandparents Raising Grandkids ministry. It's part of our love uh, initiative where we love orphans via everybody, uh, different ways we do that. She's already connected, God's already working, and we saw ourselves as a team, is just part of what God was already doing. Very humbling, very encouraging. But at the same time, everybody working at the Habitat House, for hours and hours, they were laughing. I only saw like three people throw hammers at each other. Just kidding. I didn't see that at all. There was actually a lot of encouragement, embracing, participating in what God is doing. God's fellow workers, while deeping in relationship. That's what you want, folks. It's what you want. 
a deeper awareness of working with God and a deeper relationship with others. It's found gospel blessings and giving yourself so that others can know Christ personally. But it's not just about relationship. It's also about restoration. The next thing that we see is that gospel blessings include daily renewal. One of my favorite images from all the Corinthian correspondence is when Paul talks about being treasures in jars of clay, broken, weak, vegetable, vegetables, (laughs) vessels, where the light and the power and the hope of glory shines through their cracks. And at the end of that image of, of being a vessel of God's message, of his light, of his grace, of his mercy, he says, and we know we are being renewed day by day. You long for this renewal. You need this renewal. And the gospel invites you to experience the blessing of this renewal by finding the life that is only, only found when you learn to die for other people. It's a beautiful blessing. Thirdly, it's not just relationship. It's not just restoration. What else is it? Gospel blessings give you just a refurbished personally. Gives you a new purpose. When you come to Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, that you are a new creation in Christ. You have a new identity. You're no longer primarily your nationality, your social class. You're no longer primarily your moral community, your alma mater, where you went to school or didn't go to school, your zip code. You are primarily a new creation in Christ. And this new purpose is God making his appeal through you to the world. He calls you an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation, where he explicitly says God is making his appeal through you to be reconciled to the world. That is purpose. You're looking for purpose. You long for purpose. You find this purpose when you embrace the gospel participation. Finally, and not lastly, I walk with people all the time who are so surprised by God's sovereignty, so frustrated, like someone who's in an airport and all their plane flights are going just everywhere. You don't know. We have no control. And when Paul is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he uses this imagery of a triumphal procession. And the whole context of the conversation is Paul's frustration that he hasn't been able to come back to Corinth. It's his scheduling. And in the process of that, frustration over life, frustration over loss, frustration over inconvenience, frustration over a change of plans, God says this, the security that we have in God's sovereignty, that in a world of death, in a world of darkness, that we follow Christ in triumphant procession, that we can be the aroma of Christ, it frees you to take your eyes off of yourself, off of your self-pity, off of your inconvenience, off of your personal frustrations, to put them on your Savior who rose from the grave so that you can see everyone, everywhere, in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, in your schools, in your, on your teams, every, everywhere, as a place for you to be the aroma of Christ. This is just a few of the gospel blessings that God gives us when we free ourselves to understand gospel freedom the way Jesus teaches it and Paul models it. You see, true freedom is not found in doing what we want when we want it, getting things our way right away. It's not throwing off all constraints. True freedom is found when we celebrate God's rule, his authority over us, and we allow the love of God to constrain us, knowing that Christ has died for us so that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who's for our sake died and was raised. This freedom 
it manifests, it's shown in accommodation that, that the love of Christ flows through us, that we do all we can for others, not only to see the love that we seek to show, but to come to know Christ, but also to celebrate participation in gospel blessings with people who come to know Christ and brothers and sisters who are in the same fight. This is why we come to the table, because if you're like me, you need grace and all this. This is an awesome invitation, but I just see my limitations. I see my misunderstanding of freedom. I see uh, not laying down my, my life to serve others, but I see in my heart using others to trying to give myself life. I, I don't see my schedules and my life disruptions as an opportunity to be the Rome of Christ. <laughs> I get frustrated and more often than opening my hands, say, God, what do you have in store? I raise my fist. Like, God, what are you doing? I thought you cared. If you're like me, you need to feast on God's grace. This is the place, not just where we remember, but where our souls are nourished by the one who had every right to stay in heaven but he chose to lay down every right. And Paul says in Philippians 2, he took the nature of a slave. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that those of us who deserve to die because we're slaves more to ourselves and our own longings and desires than we are to righteousness and the righteous one, Jesus, died so that I can be forgiven we can be accepted in his love because it was the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of my new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And friends, he will come again. And until then, we have the opportunity not only to feast and to know his love, but to be nourished so that we can show his love in all of life, that the world, everyone everywhere, might know his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love that you showed in the person and work of Jesus, that while we were still sinners and your enemies, you died for us. All of us come in here tonight, this morning, Lord, with very unique burdens very unique fears, various levels of anxiety. Lord, all of us come in here with a, a tangled understanding of reality, of what freedom is. Uh, and Lord, we thank you for just the freedom to acknowledge that, golly, we're idolatrous. So we want things our way right away. We thank you that your grace is sufficient to forgive us and to cleanse us. Lord, I pray that you would demonstrate your rule and your sovereignty over all the cares and places of need and comfort in people's lives, that they would experience you personally there. Lord, in our city, we desperately need to show, see your rule and reign. Our city, our leaders are making active decisions for death. They're making active decisions against life and light. And Lord, we know you're sovereign. And we pray that you would celebrate and cultivate a culture of life through your people, that truly we would be an aroma and that we would speak loudly with our love. 
Father, we pray that you would be using the brokenness of this world. It's hard to believe that there's been more than 20 different multi-billion dollar catastrophes in our world, from hurricanes to floods to wars, and this year alone. But Lord, you have a greater capital that can bring healing and hope in all of these places of brokenness in our world. Would you do that? Would you take things that the enemy intends for evil and death and darkness and use them for good? And we thank you, Lord, that we can be secure in your sovereignty. We can feast upon your grace in this common and ordinary place of the table. And we ask that you would take the bread and the cup and you would set it apart by your spirit and that you would truly nourish us. That in our places of death, we'd feast on your life. That in our places of sin, we'd feast on your forgiveness. In our places of self-servingness, Lord, we would feast upon you giving yourself fully to serve us. Lord, we thank you that we can be secure in your love and that we can pray the way that you taught us to pray as your people saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.